0: Released in 1993, directed by Jim Sheridan and starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Emma Thompson and Pete Postlethwaite, In the Name of the Father was adapted from Gerry Conlon's memoir Proved Innocent. Published in 1990, it detailed how Conlon and three others, who came to be known as the Guildford Four, were falsely convicted of partaking in an IRA bombing campaign in 1970s Britain. Told with a deep sense of outrage, Sheridan's film unfolds with great urgency and begins in an even greater hurry. As the Universal Studios logo comes up on the screen, we don't hear the usual Instead, we hear this. It is as if Conlon's story can't wait for protocol. In fact, just over a minute and Think of the different ways Sheridan could have opened the film. A more formal introduction would have been with a title card explaining the backdrop to the story. How, in late 1960s Northern Ireland, peaceful civil rights marches were held to protest the institutionalised prejudice faced by the Catholic community. And how those marches were met with police and military brutality. And how that, in turn, gave rise to the provisional IRA. Or it could have established young Gerry Conlon and his life in Belfast. But no, Sheridan and his editor, Jory Hambling, chose to show exactly how terrorism invades the lives of ordinary citizens. Sudden, brutal and indiscriminate. And to the victims, completely out of context. In fact, it is only after the bomb goes off and the debris hurls across the street that the film gives us any context. A title card comes up telling us that we're in Guildford on October the 5th, 1974. <laughs> Sheridan's opening is similar to the opening to Alan Parker's Mississippi Burning. That is not to say that Sheridan was copying or taking his cue from Parker's film. They are unrelated stories, and the screenplays are structured in markedly different ways. But nonetheless, it is worth noting that six times Oscar-nominated editor Jerry Hambling worked on both pictures. There are, of course, differences to their openings. Where Sheridan's film literally erupts, Mississippi Burning begins in a graduated manner bedding down into a sinister threat, steadily revealing the source of that threat before finally unleashing its violence in a shocking fashion.
1: Oh shit, we into it now, boys. Well, left me a nigger, but at least I shot me a nigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Once the violence impacts, a title card comes up telling us we're in Mississippi, 1964. After that, Parker's film switches to a pair of FBI agents on their way to combat the terrorist activities of the Ku Klux Klan. Similarly, In the Name of the Father also cuts to a motorcar, this time to one person. As yet, an unidentified woman, driving while listening to her passenger, who is in actual fact not a passenger, but a cassette tape carrying a voice. The voice is that of Jerry Conlon, played in blistering fashion by Daniel Day-Lewis. Conlon was just 20 years old when he was arrested on suspicion of planting the IRA bomb in the London suburb of Guildford that murdered five people. Then, along with three others, Paul Hill, Paddy Armstrong and Carol Richardson, Conlon was subsequently interrogated, tortured, charged, tried, convicted and sentenced to life in prison for a crime he did not commit. After 15 years of campaigning, the Guildford Four were finally released. The British Crown Prosecution admitting to the catastrophic violation of justice. Here is Conlon himself.
2: They handcuffed me. They put a hood over my head. They put a belt around the hood. They took me to an airport, and they flew me to a foreign country. They flew me to London on Sunday, the 1st of December, 1974. When I was taken off the plane, they hooded me again, handcuffed me. Put a belt around the hood. They struck me naked, dragged me to a cell, I'd lost cell in a, a little corridor. When I went in, there was snow coming in through the windows because they'd taken all the windows out. And there was only a concrete base for a bed.
0: The structural device, devised by Sheridan and his co writer Terry George, was daring but effective and helped keep Conan's story from the cliche genre of the persecuted man. The film starts with the explosion. Hurtles us beyond the point of arrest, court case, and conviction, and instead, lands us on the point where Conlon is already campaigning for his release. Through placing Conlon as the narrator of his own story, the film immediately introduces us to Garth Pierce, Played by Emma Thompson, Pierce is the heroically tenacious solicitor and human rights activist whose tireless work secured the acquittal and eventual release of Conlon, Hill, Armstrong and Richardson. The way in which Pierce is introduced introduces us to the film's effective use of imagery she is driving in her car and just as she begins listening to conan's cassette she enters a motorway tunnel of course such a structure facilitates the need to inform pierce as well as the audience of what has happened but as we hear conan thanking her for listening to his case it is as if pierce had picked up a lost and lonely hitchhiker and will bring him out of the darkness and up into the light of freedom
3: our case was so insane that if you made it up, nobody would believe it. Look, Gart, I know people say that I'm a compulsive storyteller, and nobody believed the word I said in court, but Garth, Charlie Burke did exist. He's not just a figment of my imagination. We were shipped off to Park Royal Prison, an old Victorian fortress where Britain's most dangerous criminals were held in the maximum security wing. Face of birth, Belfast. Then you're British. This is your home for the rest of your life. So accept it and get on with it. Right, come this way. The chief warder, Barker, gave us blue denim uniforms with yellow stripes. We were category A, the highest security class along with the rapists and murderers. My father said we'd fight for an appeal, but I didn't want to know about the legal system. Come on, follow
1: me.
0: In a career defined by superb performances, the Daniel DeLewis lewis we see here is, like everything else, unlike everything else he has ever done. His Jerry Conlon is a live wire, already short-circuiting, whipping and turning in a myriad of emotions and directions, never once able to sit still. By his own admission, Conlon was a wayward youth before he was falsely convicted. But, as incarnated by DeLewis, lewis he is a tailspin of frantic gestures, compulsive tics and anxious jerks, that is neither mannered nor mired in technique. Yet, there is method, but only insofar as it is Day-Lewis' method of research and preparation. Ordinarily, Day-Lewis is a carefully measured interviewee, but here we meet him in a different mood. They had these thugs to come and bang on the doors with tin cups every ten minutes for three nights so that I couldn't
3: sleep. And then at the end of those three nights, they had three teams of two real special
0: branch policemen who interrogated me for nine hours without stopping. That was the only way I could figure out to try and come close to an understanding of why an innocent man destroys his own life. What strikes me is De lewiss penetrative question. In the hands of another less talented and probing actor, the approach would have been to play Conlon solely as a victim. The result would have sanctified him near to the point of martyrdom, which would have been a disservice and an insult to the man and the way he bore his suffering. While Conlon was in no way responsible for the atrocity hurled upon him, it is interesting to hear de Lewis choose the words, decision to destroy his own life. That statement is in no way a judgment or condemnation of Conlon, but instead it reflects how Conlon felt about himself. Soon after Jerry Conlon was arrested, his father, Giuseppe, played in the film by Pete Postlethwaite, traveled from Belfast in the hope of securing the release of his son. But Giuseppe was arrested, along with six others, all members of the Maguire family, on equally trumped up charges. Giuseppe was tried, convicted on false evidence, and sentenced to life, dying three years later in prison. Here is Conlon again.
2: I was walking around the exercise yard after being on remand for a week in Winchester. And I thought, I'm going
0: insane.
2: Because I could hear my father's voice, very faint. And I thought he was back home in Ireland. And I remember as we got close to the hospital part of the exercise yard, his voice got louder. And I looked up and I seen him at the window. My father had worked at the shipyards and he developed emphysema through having no health and safety. He was red leading ships in the early 50s. All my life, all I've ever known is my father in and out of sanatoriums. He couldn't walk to the bar without stopping two or three times but he made this incredible journey for me
0: which brings me to the film's title remember conlan's memoir was called presumed innocent so why the change although the film positions father and son in the same cell in real life father and son were never even in the same prison but sheridan changed those facts to share a deeper wider more resonant story by putting Jerry and Giuseppe in the same space, Sheridan catapulted the story beyond a legal drama. In Sheridan's hands, it became mythical, or at least a fable of sin and redemption, atonement and forgiveness. I'm referring to Cardi Collodi's story of Geppetto, the woodcarver, and his young boy, Pinocchio. Pinocchio was always getting into scrapes and was always dependent on his father, bailing him out of trouble. Pinocchio runs away and then gets into even deeper trouble. Learning of his difficulty, Geppetto then goes to rescue the boy, but they both end up in the belly of the whale.
3: Why are you looking at me like that? What? Why are you looking at me like that? Like what? Why do you always follow me? Huh? Why do you always follow me when I do something wrong? Why can't you follow me when I do something right? What are you talking about? Huh? What am I talking about? I'm talking about the medal. What medal? What fucking medal? What fucking medal? I'm talking about the only fucking medal that was ever in our house. That fucking medal. The medal i won at football.
0: Nominated for seven Oscars, three for the named cast members, In the Name of the Father is Jim Sheridan's best film. Powerfully persuasive, it throbs with fury. For much of the first half, anger fuels the plot. Then at the midpoint, that ferments into frustration. And then, only in the final act, does it fade to a story of a son and his father, and in so doing, the fury and frustration give way to compassion, forgiveness and clemency.
3: What I remember most about my childhood is holding your hand, my wee hand in your big hand, and the smell of tobacco, I, I remember the... I could smell the tobacco off the palm of your hand. When I want to feel happy, I try to remember the smell of tobacco.
0: Sheridan is a remarkably gifted director of actors and I think it was in that manner he was able to take Conlon's story presumed innocent and move it beyond a biopic and political polemic and deliver a personal film where a son attempts to repair his fractious relationship with his father. How personal was that to Sheridan? Very interesting because he was always the negative guy in the movies
1: like the field. The father was bad. In the plays I wrote sometimes, I put my own father's name in it. And 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 my mother would go to the theater and say, that's you. And I was like, ugh. And then I realized, you know, it's not really my dad. It's just the situation. So then I realized I have to make a movie about a good dad. And I would tell him and he'd be totally happy. He'd be drinking his pint totally. And to get that smile out of him, I would tell him 20 times. <laughs> and I made the movie and So on the opening night I said uh, the prototype from my left foot was my mother and the prototype for this is my father and he's sitting there and he's coming up on stage and he walked up and he got a big clap and he hugged me and in this ear he said I love you and I pushed him back to look in his eyes because I'd never heard that before and I just looked at him for a while the audience kept clapping Pete Postlethwaite told me he was crying in the back. The audience went, it went that far, the emotion, right? That's fucking 500 feet. And he was dead two weeks later. Died like that. That's mad.